You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. The letter of James. I want to read to you now the very first 18 verses of the letter of James. We're going to try to pick up where we left off last week, and we'll begin to pick up the pace over the next several weeks. Uh, we'll cover a little bit more than we've covered in the last two, but, but I hope you'll see that even in the, the small sections that we've been walking through, uh, there's, there's much to be gleaned, there's much to be learned, and, and so many, in many ways that what we're seeing is going to, uh, to be amplified in different ways. Uh, what we've already been walking through together in the first couple of verses will be applied in uh, a variety of ways. And so here's what we know. Like I, I've shared with you, and, and, and James will offer to you and I, that what we believe and what we value is visible in our lives. And as he was speaking to one of the earliest churches, this, this is probably the earliest letter written to any churches that we have in the New Testament, in Jerusalem, they were beginning to experience uh, persecution, difficulty, trial, and that was beginning to, to like make them question their faith. Because as we saw last week, trial exposes what you really believe. Uh, trial exposes your limits and what you really trust in. And so we saw last week that, that we are able, because of God's purpose in our life, to even experience joy in the midst of trial. Not joy because of trial, but we have joy not rooted in our circumstances, but in the character and goodness and plan of God for our benefit. And so... I want to reread that as we begin to think about how James wants us to apply a litmus test to our faith. And so, if you're if you're a believer in the room, this is for us a this is going to be a convicting and 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 pretty profound and direct word to say like, hey, oh yeah, you think you believe this? Well, look at these areas of your life. If you have authentic faith, true faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ, this is how it will look. But if you're in the room and you're not a believer, maybe you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or maybe, maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're kind of on that journey, but maybe also you're just skeptical. Well, then I want to invite you into eavesdrop. I want you to invite you in to hear what it is that, that we believe Christianity is. For just a minute, kind of dis, like dispense with your, your preconceived notion about what you think it is to be a Christian, and, and consider what the text tells us a Christian is, what the, a Christian believes, and then how that faith is visible in their lives. So here we go, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. Well, no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift 
And every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. May that be true of us today. May life and faith come born of the word of truth. I shared with you last week that everything you believe is visible in your life. That's the underlying premise of the book of James. It seems that for the people in the book of James, they were able to answer things rightly, and yet what they answered rightly about Jesus wasn't visible in their life. And so he walks through a litmus test, a wisdom literature of the New Testament to expose what they really believe and invite them to deeper, true, authentic, and genuine faith in Christ. And so therefore, you and I, what we believe is on display. And James wants us to turn the the magnifying glass on our own lives to expose what is actually in our hearts, what we genuinely believe, what we build our life upon, what we trust in. And we saw that trials then in the hands of a good and gracious God can be a cause for rejoicing. As we saw over the last several months, we lament trials. We lament the suffering that is in the world, but it does not rob us of our joy because our joy is rooted in his character and his purpose. We'll be perfect and complete. I paraphrase a a helpful word from an author uh, I revere, God will ultimately lead you where you have never intended to go in order to produce in you what you couldn't possibly accomplish on your own. It's an uncomfortable form of grace. Do we see that in, we saw that in verses 2, 3, and 4. You'll be perfect and complete. You'll lack in nothing. And so we're left with an encouragement and trial. Do you lack something? Is there something in your life that you wish you had? Well, friend, take heart. God, because of Christ, has purchased everything you lack. And all of those things are on the way to you. Now, they may not be the things that you've picked out for yourself, but God, being a good, as we see here, and a kind father toward the end of this section, will grant us everything we need. And we'll be able to say, like the psalmist, right? The 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, right? I shall not want. That is, I don't want anything. I have everything I need. I have everything I want. I couldn't possibly get any more. I have everything I need. And the fulfillment of that shepherd's psalm is what James says, the work of Christ, the plan of God to redeem us. And so our hope, ultimately, is not in our own wisdom, in our own station or worth, as we see here, but rather our hope is in the gracious generosity of God our Father. Let me put it this way. The pure wisdom of God is trusting Jesus and knowing, knowing, being certain of our position in him. That's the wisdom of God. We believe that wisdom is embodied in a person. So that as we find here in the next passage, verse 5, when, when we sense lack in wisdom and we ask for wisdom, we know, Paul tells us elsewhere, that if God would not withhold his own son for us, there's nothing else he would withhold. And so we get everything, every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1 tells us, in Christ. And the very wisdom of God is visible in his work for us in Christ. A thing we saw here that he gives generously. Now, if I were to kind of like define wisdom biblically, right? Many of us, we walk through the book of Ecclesiastes, talked about wisdom and folly, uh, wisdom and, in that sense, foolishness. Here's the way I would kind of summarize it biblically. Wisdom is the ability to see things as God sees them. Just roughly speaking, I mean, we could walk through lots of different complicated bits and pieces of that that the Bible unfolds for us. But roughly speaking, real wisdom, biblical wisdom, godly wisdom is the ability to see things as God sees them. To see things from God's perspective. To understand their trajectory, their purpose, their meaning. And to see them as God sees them. So you saw last week, the ability to see 
trials as joyful comes with the ability to see God's purpose in them. We see trials and we see them as like just devastating. We see them as they're robbing us of what we really want. But, but wisdom will be the ability to see, oh, this trial is getting me to where God wants me. This trial's getting me to the perfection he has for me. After all, the, the story of the Bible is that he's created people in his own image. We reflect his image. We reflect his likeness. But we sin and against him. We, we rebel against him. We want to be God and Savior of our own lives. And so therefore, what's, what's intended for us to, to display to the world because of God's goodness is marred. It's destroyed. And yet in Christ, God quite literally, wisely has restored us and is now making us back to the image bearers, the ones that lack nothing that was meant for us from the beginning. So if wisdom is seeing God as, or seeing things as God sees them, foolishness then is seeing things apart from how God sees them. Wisdom is the redeeming work of God in Christ who can use a cross to save people. The world, because of sin, is broken and powerfully destroyed, and yet, because of Christ, it will be healed, redeemed. It will be restored in such a way that is profound. Now, wisdom, then, is, according to verse 5, looking outside of ourselves to God. Right? It's, it's as if to say, practically speaking, I don't seem to see things like God sees it, therefore I need help. And we find out that God gives it richly. And, and then we see the list of things that, as we grant wisdom, we'll also understand, beginning in verse 9, how we understand worldly wealth and possessions and life and death. In verse 12, we begin to understand by God's grace and the wisdom that he grants for us in Christ, we begin to be able to stand fast under trial. Here's that word again, that repetition of hyperstanding in the midst of trial and temptation. And then we see the goodness of God because of his purpose for us, and we receive all the good gifts he has for us. So we'll just kind of walk through all of those things and, and see them as a, a list and a litany of litmus tests for our faith. The wisest thing that has ever happened is that God saved the world, redeemed the world. Think of it as like the most difficult thing that anyone could do. Could, can you fix all that's broken in the world? Well, neither can I. I lack the wisdom. And yet God looks at it and says, I can fix that. That's not a problem. Done. I'm going to go down there, fixed. And so Death is now dead. The resurrection of Jesus marks the, the beginning of a new era of redemption and restoration that finally when Jesus returns, he will complete and he will take away all the suffering that exists. But in the meantime, what does exist, the suffering that's difficult that we experience exposes us, exposes what we believe. It exposes the work, did you hear that? Yet to be done. The imperfections yet to be completed. The brokenness yet to be healed. The sin yet to be forgiven. These things we, we in Christ experience restoration for and suffering and trial exposes the place where God is at work. And so the wisdom of God is finding all of this restoring work in, restorative work in Christ and knowing, knowing our standing before him, our position before him. But here's the catch. Trials expose what we think our life is really about. I mean, I just said all that, right? Like, you, God has a plan for you, and your difficulty is, 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 is lamentable, and, and we weep over it, and yet our joy is unshakable because God's going to use all these things. He's going to bring about what the enemy meant for evil, good in your life, and for the saving of many lives, right? This is what God's going to do, and yet trial... <laughs> Real suffering, real temptation that you and I experience makes it very difficult to believe that. And so trial exposes what we think our life is really about. Ask yourself this, what's the most difficult thing you've ever endured? And whatever's at the top of that list is directly connected to what you believe your life is about. Right? If you ever find, like, like this is the most difficult, this is the most painful thing I've ever been through. Yeah, I, here's the thing. Here's what you're not going to hear me say. It's not that bad. No, it's, ter it's awful. Apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, that will be the end story. 
But that worst thing you've ever endured, that thing that was the most difficult, just, just recognize, reveals what you believe life is about. And so therefore, in that moment, in that difficulty, you found yourself probably like unable to be joyful, unable to find meaning, unable to see purpose. And you were like, what's the point? And here's what I get to tell you. That was actually God's good grace to take you somewhere you would never have wanted to go yourself to make you into something you could never make yourself into alone. And it's wisdom. It is, I mean, miraculous, supernatural wisdom to see that. So when trials come, they expose what we believe, they expose what we value. And so therefore we're meant to at the end of ourselves, look to God for wisdom, understanding, the ability to see them as he sees them, rather than as they appear to us in the here and now. And foolishness is to see them apart from how God sees them. Here's what I'll I'll say that, notice, it's an imperative. Let him ask God. It's a command. It'd be better to say if someone wants wisdom, he must or she must ask God. It's imperative. Like You must do this. And you have to look apart from yourself to get this. Now, this is the hard part about trial. Trial brings us to the end of ourselves, doesn't it? It exposes the limits of our abilities. And as we see here, it exposes the limits of our wisdom. And under duress, like folly abounds. And it's God's goodness to expose the limits of our wisdom. But make no mistake about it, if I'm talking to a bunch of upper Midwesterners, your your personal God is ultimately self-reliance. right? The thought of appearing needy to people is a nightmare to you. It's a nightmare, right? And I actually have that recurring nightmare. Right? I have the grown-up version. I don't know if you had that. Like, you're, in the, you're in the playground and you don't have something, the things you need. I'll just say it that way. I still have that grown-up version nightmare right? that, I, like, that I, I, all the time, I have to preach a sermon, can't find my notes. Right? Or I have to, like, it's, it's just some sort of grown-up version. And, and underneath it is the fear that I think you and I both share of, like, we would hate the thought that we would be needy. We would hate the thought that people would see our flaws and insufficiencies, that they would find out that we're not really as awesome as we think we are. And here's the thing. You and I both think we're much wiser than we really are. We all think we're much more capable than we really are. Now, practically speaking, this last year for me personally has been a humbling reminder that that's not the case, right? Uh, As I've shared with many of you and some of our leaders and even people in our gospel community, like the goal for this last year for us has just been, let's, let's, let's pick the best of the bad options, right? Let's make the least worst decision, right? When, when, when you're uncertain about the future and you're not sure what to do, then we're just kind of like, let's have, right, let's have good expectations for each other and go, you know what, let's, let's do the least damage we possibly can. Let's make the least foolish decision possible. And that's because, at least for me personally, the last year has exposed the limits of my wisdom. What do we do next? But here's the thing about self-sufficiency and coming to the end of yourself to receive this command to look to God for what you don't have in yourself. It is very hard to tell the difference between not coming to the end of yourself and being completely full of yourself. When we're kind of sitting around and we're like not quite at the end of ourselves, it's really hard to tell the difference between that and being completely full of yourself. The line between being dependent upon God and, and leaving that, 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 that kind of leaving that, that glad dependency that we were created to experience since the garden and being absolutely self-sufficient and self-absorbed is very, very fine. And James says last week, he doesn't want us just to get by in trials. He wants us to thrive in them in the midst of suffering. He wants us to deal with the world with what maybe we'll call like a vertical view. Rather than just seeing horizontally the events around us as they transpire, to see them vertically in light of God's kingship, sovereignty, reign, and rule. And so we reflect His goodness, His character in the wisdom with which we respond to trial. 
And trial, by some gracious mystery, right, an uncomfortable grace, reminds us of what God has for us. The thing that you and I lack, God has for us, if we will but ask him for it. All the questions, all the difficulties you and I have at one point in Christ will be gone. They'll fade away. So he's making us steadfast. If you lacked wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. So wisdom must be asked for. And then when we receive it, we find in kind of a list, 9, 12, and 16, this little passage, we come to realize that the goodness of God, our position in him that is eternal despite worldly circumstances, it's transforming our desires for what's good and aware of our desires that are sinful. And then it makes us recipients, glad recipients of God's grace, born of his word. So we ask God for it. We ask. We put ourselves in a position of asking and humility, and we receive then, did you catch that? The crown of life. Wisdom is needed in order to view these trials that you and I experience in such a way that it refines our faith. These trials are instruments that God will use to make us what we are currently not. He will make up for what is lacking. So our hope is not in our own wisdom, Beginning in verse 9, whether we're rich or poor, our station, maybe our worth, but rather our hope is in the gracious generosity of God our Father. Did you catch that? Who gives all the good things to us. So friend, do you feel like you're lacking? Do you feel like you're missing out? Do you feel like there's something in your life that you just can't get a hold of? Here's what I'll tell you. It's likely because you're looking to the wrong place for those things. It's likely you're asking a bad father for bad gifts. And, and what we find here is like, stop, stop hoping or trusting that that will happen, right? It, it actually won't get better in the next relationship. I don't know if you know that. Like, it, it actually won't because you'll take you with you, right? It actually won't get better when you get a new job because the problem, you, will t- you, you take you with you. It won't get, if the circumstance changes, you drag you with you. And so stop looking to those things for what they can never give you. And say, what do we find here at the end? Look to the Father who gives good stuff. And even Jesus says, look, you're not even a very good father, but you would never give like a snake to your child. So how much more will your your heavenly Father give you all the things you need and give you his spirit? So that's an imperative. The one who lacks wisdom, right? So just, when I say the one who lacks wisdom, the first thing I want to ask is like, who do you think of? <laughs> right? And so, so if, if on that list, or is anyone above you, you missed it, right? Right? If you can think of other, well, man, I know that, that guy, fool. Like, that guy's a fool, right? But, but if you're not aware of your own foolishness, your own lacking of wisdom, then, you, then friend, you haven't met Jesus. You haven't seen the, the eternal and magnificent wisdom of God to redeem and save sinners who could never save themselves. And so God gives to those who recognize that they need. Be needy for just a minute, right? Be that needy, mopey person you, just, you, you despise, right? Be that person before God. And look what he'll do. Did you catch that? He will give generously and without reproach. Generously. He'll just, he's, he's ready to give it. He's eager to give it. Wants to give it. Notice this. A problem we will regularly encounter here is that God is more eager and willing to give wisdom than we're eager and willing to ask for it and receive it. Like, God is, God is it's, like, it's as if God is waiting. It's like, I've got everything you need. I'm just, it's, just like, it's like kind of creeping up behind you. I, I got it. I got all the grace you need, all the mercy you need, all the wisdom you need. And, and we're most like, leave me alone. I got this, okay? I got this. Like, okay, but I'm right here. I'm right here. And it's as if to say, like, the minute we say, God, I, I don't know. He's like, got it, generously pours it on us, lavishes it upon us, graciously. Gives us everything we need. And the problem here isn't that God isn't willing to give grace. The problem is that you and I don't think we need it. Remember, I, I shared this with you last week. It's like, look, the, the problem isn't your weakness. That's not keeping you from the power of Christ. The problem is your delusion of strength. And so here's, like, here's, the, here's the catcher. The problem here isn't your foolishness, Right? The problem is, is your delusion of wisdom. <laughs> the problem isn't that you're foolish. The problem is that you don't know it. 
And it seems, again, I think James is trying to tell the church here that everyone else kind of sees it. Everyone else kind of knows where you and I are foolish. We're just the only ones who are like, nah. And we'll see that even here. Like, we look at the mirror and go like, hmm, yeah, I think that guy. And then we walk away and go like, nope, definitely not a fool, right? And we'll see this in, in, the, in, the, in the verses to come. But like, the problem with our lack of wisdom is that we don't know it. We're so deceived and we miss out on all, God, all that God has for us. Here's the second thing. Did you catch that? He gives generously, but then the second, way he, the second thing he does is he gives without reproach. Now, I don't know about you. Um, I was, uh, I, I'm kind of like from a fairly self-sufficient uh, family. Uh, people get stuff done, creative, innovative, you know, inventors. And when you do something dumb in, in our family, you, you get wisdom. Someone will happily teach you, right? Like, hey, you know, that was foolish. Here's what's wise. But it always comes with just a little bit of condescension, right? Just a little bit of shame, you know? Like, I got wisdom for you, but let's stop for a minute and let's recognize what an idiot you are, right? I don't know, maybe you, maybe you, you had this. Maybe, maybe you have had teachers or coaches like this, right? Now, notice, God is happy to rub our noses in it if we don't recognize its foolishness. God is happy to let us wallow in it until we realize it has no power to save or satisfy. But once we do that, once we look to him, look, he gives without reproach, without condemnation, without condescension, without shame, without, like, what, here, but you're an idiot, right? It's like, no, I've been waiting for this. I've been looking for this moment to give this to you. The best analogy I give is like my own daughters. I remember, you know, for the last several uh, since they've been born, you know, we buy them Bibles and Jesus Storybook Bible and walk into it. And my favorite thing is like, you know, my wife, the same thing. is like they're, they're kind of like, I'm not really great at much of anything, uh, but I've studied a lot. I have a few degrees, um, at least related to this book, right? And so that's a pretty, for, for, for the most part, that's a pretty useless task and tool, right? Um, until someone goes like, hey, what about that, you know, what about, I was reading the other day in, in Second Chronicles, and I saw that, that, that David did this, and what is it, and, I, and I'm like, all right, here we go, right? I've been waiting, I've been waiting, this is, this is my one chance, this is my one job, and my own daughters, is there, they're like, well, what does it mean when the Bible says this? And I'm like, all right, here we go. So also God, in an infinitely more perfect way, without condescension, without reproach, without any sort of accusation or shame, says, I'm so glad you asked. I've been wanting to give this wisdom to you. And trials expose our lack of wisdom. Even the wisdom to respond rightly. He gives one qualification. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So he's got all this wisdom, all this that he wants to give, all this that he wants to grant. And if we ask in faith, then he will give it. So authentic faith for us, here's the litmus test of this passage, is authentic faith is to receive and to ask for and to receive wisdom from God. To recognize we don't have it in and of ourselves, we're not that smart, and we need it from God. And we receive it, but the way that we ask is in faith, is in expectation without doubt. Now, notice the doubt he's talking about here. If you remember when we walked through the book of Jude, the other brother of Jesus, right? He says that we should encourage and lift up the doubting, right? He's not, he's not talking about intellectual questions here. He's not talking about like, this is a mystery and I'm not sure about it. He's talking about presuming on God that God would somehow give you something even though you don't really think he has that ability. Think of it as like it's a cynical ask. It's a, it's a way to like come to God and, and not really trust him with the answer. Maybe one of the ways to think of this is like to presume that you know better than God, right? Many of the ways I would just say that we experience this is that the way we doubt, I'll just give you kind of one example, is when, is when we come to God and we ask him for things that are just ridiculous, right? In a sense, that's, that's doubting, because we're, we're not trusting God actually knows. We're like, this is what I need, God. You know, why haven't you given me this thing, right? And, and so that's, you know, the analogy I've, I've shared with you before. It's like, my daughter comes to me for a pony, right? When I say no, it's not because I don't love them. It's because that's just probably not best for us, right? 
Uh, but when we get in real trouble is when they stop coming to the Father and they come to you and you give them a pony, right? And now we all got beef, right? <laughs> in the same way, when we come to the Father and pretend that we know what's best for us, that can be a way of presuming. That can be a way of saying, God, I know it's but you give me this thing. And what we're really saying is we don't think God is the source of every good gift. We're like, I, the source of every good gift is in my imagination. I know what I need, and I need this. So secondly, authentic faith, beginning in verse 9, has a divine perspective on the world and its riches. Well, this is a paradox, isn't it? Let's read it together. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Huh? And the rich brother implied brother here, boasts in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Right? So now now you see the structure of the wisdom literature. It's difficult to decipher, right? It's like, what does that have to do with the previous? And, and this is the part of New Testament wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs, that's kind of a litany, right? It's as if you picture like a man walking along and going, you see that there? You did? And, and just kind of throwing it at these people. Now, we can find ways in which these are obviously interrelated. But in another sense, this is just simply another place where we can experience wisdom and see the authenticity of our faith. So authentic faith, right, has a divine perspective on the world and its riches, now, this is tough because if you're a Westerner, and especially if you're American, you have been steeped in deeply capitalistic convictions, okay? I'm not going to stand up here and blast capitalism. I'm just going to address the, like, our context, right? And so capitalism is good at just that, building capital. If you want to get rich, you're probably going to need a capitalistic structure, Okay? And so capitalism is great for that. It is great for making, like, building capital. Imagine, right? Yeah, so, so this is kind of like the, in this sense, this, this is, this is going to be difficult for us because one of the things that the New Testament addresses regularly, whether it's Jesus or even these, these letters of Paul, or in this case, James, is money. And we don't like to talk about money. Right? Even if you, you kind of want to show it off, like you got something nice and someone, that's really nice. And you're like, well, I got a good deal on it. Right? And it's like, like we, we just don't, we're not, we just have to start with, with this kind of understanding. We're not really good at it. We're just not very proficient in talking about money. It's a place where, for some reason, it's none of anyone's business. And yet, we find here that if you don't talk about money, you won't actually talk about one of the main indicators of our hearts. And so he says, let's think about money for a minute. Let's think about the lowly brother, right, in contrast to the rich brother, the humble brother, the meek brother, the, the person living in, in low circumstances. Let this brother boast, right? Just stop for a minute. Imagine you're down on your luck. You, you, you are not wealthy. You're not doing well and boasting at it and being like, I'm in good shape. On the other hand, in verse 10, the other side of the paradox, imagine a rich person boasting at their weakness, failure, or even loss of their wealth. He tells us we have an eternal perspective. We see like God sees. We see life and the rich man and the wealth of this world like we see the flower of the grass. We see material wealth like we see grass like we see flowers. Is it fantastic when it's green and blue? Yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic. Thank God for it, right? And yet, none of us expects the grass to last forever. None of us expects a flower to last forever. In fact, there's a season for a flower, and it's a part of its healthy life cycle. And so when we understand God's purpose and plan, when we seek his wisdom, we begin to have because of what we have received in Christ, a better understanding of worldly status, worldly circumstances. Ask yourself this question. What are you worth? And your answer to that question will reveal everything you believe about what you treasure in light of God's kindness and what you treasure in light of the world. What are you worth? What are you worth? 
How would you even calculate that, right? If I asked you, hey, how valuable are you? Think about that. Think about how others have told you to value yourself. Think about how others have imposed that understanding of your value and worth. What are you worth? What's your value? Do you see? You see what he's asking us to think about? Do you see how that kind of exposes what you really believe? So I don't want to leave you hanging on that. I'll share with you even my own experience. So I'm a younger brother, so I'm okay with hand-me-downs and used stuff. Like, I'm that guy, I don't have to buy it new. If I can buy it on Craigslist or eBay, I'm gonna, okay? And you won't know the difference. And, I'm a, and I like hand-me-downs because I'm, I'm, I'm a younger brother. I never knew any different, right? And in the, in the world of hand-me-downs and buying and selling of used goods, some of you know this, maybe you've bought and sold some antiques or just some stuff. Here's what you find. Everyone thinks what they have is worth a lot. Right? Like, they're like, oh, yeah, I was gonna, I've given this, and it's like, it's totally worth a bunch of money. And, and, and here's the axiom, here's the thing you learn, right? This is what you learn. If you've ever done this, like, oh, I have this whole, it's really good. It's, you know, this, you know it's, in, it's in mint condition. Oh, yeah, you know, and it, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. Here's what you learn. A thing is only worth what someone will pay for it. I mean, you can, you can oh, yeah, it's, I, have all this, it's, I have all this stuff, and it's worth all this much. Oh, no, 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 no. It is only worth what someone will pay for it. Get it? Ask that question again. What are you worth? What's your value? Because for the Christian, that is incredibly encouraging, isn't it? If I'm only worth what someone will pay for it, then how good and gracious must God be that he would send his only son for me? And if God would do that for me, why would he withhold anything else? Friend, you are only worth what someone will pay for you, what someone will give for you. And in this life, that's not much. But in eternity, the wealth of all of God's possession has been bestowed upon you in Christ. You are worth an eternity, not in and of yourself. Right? You and I have no merit. Really, whatever, you're not worth much except for what someone paid for me on Calvary and rose victorious three days later to stamp that done. It's paid in full. It's finished, right? So when we ask questions that James asks us, like, hey, what are you really worth? What's really valuable? We can either see things in light of worldly riches, being lowly, poor, or wealthy, or we can actually boast, we can be boast in spite of difficult situations, the challenge of being poor or the challenge of being rich. Because in the end, the sun exposes, right? It burns and scorches up, and it shows what's really valuable. Kind of a couple of implications for this. It means that we, we regularly wary, we're just wary of what wealth can do, Right? Paul tells us that money in and of itself is not a good or bad thing. It's a neutral thing. It quite literally shows you what you value, right? You can be like, I value this. And you can be, nope, nope, they, they have an accounting system to answer that question. Like, this is what you value. This is what you spend money on. And so your, your, your wealth, whatever's been entrusted to you, I, I, can, I think I would make the contention that for most of us in the Western world, we, we fall more into the category of wealth, right? Like, we, we have more in common with the rich person in this particular thing. Now, remember, the Bible gives us a picture of ungodly poor and un- ungodly poor, and then and we get a picture of ungodly wealth and then godly wealth, right? And, and the way, the best place we see this is, is pretty simple, right? When Jesus walked the earth, was he wealthy or poor, right? And yet, and yet Paul tells us later that Christ was rich, but even though he was rich, he became poor so that we might experience his eternal riches and eternal wealth. So we're wary. We're wary of how we think about and talk about money because we know that just for us, it's going to be a temptation to trust in something other than God's provision. We're going to put our hope in a status that isn't eternal. And it is incumbent upon us, like we saw last week, to trust in, declare, and remind ourselves of what's true eternally, right? And so if you're like, hey, I I don't have a lot of money or like I'm not very wealthy, well, we're the group of people who go like, that's not true forever, right? That is not true forever. And the same thing to the, to the wealthy person who's like, well, I, I, I am wealthy. I don't, I don't know if that's how wealthy people act, but what? I don't know where that came from. I apologize. So 
like if we kind of boast in our wealth, right, then, then we're also the people who come along and say, that's not true eternally. That's not eternally true. Our treasure, Jesus says, shouldn't be stored up here. Our treasure should be kingdom-minded. They should be eternally-minded because that's where no one can steal it and moths can't eat it, right? This, we're eternally-minded. Now, functionally, in the life of the church, here's what I'll just kind of show, show to you, like how we apply this and, and ask you to pray for this. It means that your worldly status and your worldly achievement and worldly success will have little to no bearing on how you serve and lead in the local church. I remember I was a pastor of, a, of an established church, kind of helping them to, to revitalize. And, uh, and um, I remember they were just like, they were kind of lamenting, like, hey, um, you know, we just haven't experienced any growth, haven't baptized anyone in like years, haven't like ordained leaders in any way, like just in years. And I just started asking questions. I was like, tell me about some of these people who are, you know, like, you know, leading and making decisions. And, and what I found, and what I think most of you found, is that like, the people making decisions in the church were really, really, really good in the world. Like, I mean, they were, I mean, I mean this, some of these brothers and sisters were like successful, like had successful businesses. They were supervising lots of people. Like they were making, moving a lot of capital. Like, but, but here's the thing. The Bible tells us that we're going we're gonna to walk by faith, not by sight. And, it, and what happened is, and what can happen, is we, we really like in the church to promote all the people who walk by sight. And we mistakenly think like, oh, this, good's, this guy's really good in the world. He must serve the church really well. Wrong. And so here's what I want to tell you. Some of the people who will lead and make decisions, myself included, <laughs> will be people you don't expect. They will be the people with, who are most eternally minded. Like we're not going to take a worldly model of succession achievement and somehow baptize it in the church and expect God to be glorified in it. That is foolishness. And that is, that is a, a fraud of faith. Authentic faith sees our standing in the world and realizes that in light of God's provision, there's a different measure. Authentic faith also, beginning in verse 12, considers the purpose and goodness of God. So blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That's that same word, right? That hyperstanding, standing strong in the midst of trial and temptation. For when he has stood the test, I love that. And then encourage, encouraging for you in Christ, it's, it's a when, not if, right? The first when that was difficult was when you have trials rather than if. And then the second when is when you stand firm, God won't let you go. When you've stood the test, you will receive the crown of life, which God has promised for those who love him. Man, I hope you drink that in. Right? I hope that just is a, a source of so much joy. There's a crown of life on the way, and the way I know it, because I love God. I see him for who he is in Christ. So then, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So as if to say, if God has this plan for me and has a treasure he's set out for me in Christ, and I love him for it, then he's not to blame for the trial or difficulty, in this case, temptation to sin that I experience. He's too perfect from that. It's, it's, it's beyond God's character to, to be tempted by or to tempt you with sin. Any more than it's like, you know, within my character to teach you how to fly. Right? Like, I, I, I have no business or ability because I have no nature to teach you how to fly. In the same way, God is perfect and righteous. He can't teach you how to sin. You don't need any help. <laughs> and he gives us a picture that I believe is a robust exposition of something we learn throughout the Scripture. And I would just call it like the doctrine of the human heart. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the Bible refers to the heart as like the, it's like the, you hear me use many different metaphors, because it is a metaphor, right? It's not like your cardiovascular health is actually your life, but the heart is kind of this control center. The heart is this sum total of who you are, what you love, what you do. That's the heart, all wrapped into one. And so therefore, here's what I would share, share with you, whatever sits on the throne of your heart, Whatever rules your heart, who or whatever owns your heart, determines everything about your life. 
The state of your heart is the state of your life. It fuels everything you do. And so authentic faith recognizes that God is doing something. Every trial is a temptation. Every temptation is a trial. But it's not in God's nature to cause us to sin. Instead, it is in our nature to desire something against God. Just one brief kind of, I don't know, application of this is like, any time that, that your response to difficulty, trial, or specifically sin or failure, foolishness in your own heart, causes you to blame rather than to take responsibility, beware you're taking a pretty big step towards blaming God. Just a quick step, right? Where do I get that? Right out of Genesis, right? The first couple, they had one job, don't rebel against God. They're like, forget that, right? And so God comes back and he's like, hey, what have you guys been doing? And and they come to find out, they've, you know, comes to the surface, it's exposed that they've turned against God. And, and what is the human's response? Quite literally, I'll say that the man's response. Remember? Blame. Right? And he blames everyone, throws everybody into the bus. It was the woman that you gave me, right? Like, you're all to blame. Right? Her, you. And she's like, what? Right? This, this, is, our, this is our nature in sin. It's to blame everything else. And I know many of you are like, you know what? I, I, could, I, could, I could experience some of this stuff if I just had a different spouse. Right? If I just had a different job, if, if the circumstances were different, I wouldn't have responded that way. I've just been under a lot of stress. I've, or I've just been through a lot. Yes, those are all very true, probably, except for the fact that your heart is at the center of all of it. And whatever rules your heart dictates how you respond in each of those circumstances. And so any moment that we find ourselves going like, it wasn't me, we're taking a step towards what he warns, which is like, you're basically accusing God, who's sovereign over everything, for granting you this evil. And he wants us to know, no, that, that's, that, there's enough evil in your heart to go around. And therefore, we're introduced to a deep grace, aren't we? In the same way that we were introduced to grace by recognizing our eternal status that supersedes our, our material wealth on the earth, so also we find here there is a grace for us because the thing that needs to be changed in your life and mine isn't our behavior. The thing that needs to be changed in your life and mine is our very heart, our very selves. And if Jesus came with a list of rules, that would be awful. But instead, he says, it's finished. I have accomplished what you could not. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so therefore, you and I can hear this as an invitation to receive grace. I am hopeless. I cannot change myself. And yet, thank God that he has changed my heart in Christ. He grants me a new heart. Lastly, authentic faith considers the purpose and goodness of God. It acknowledges God as the source of every good thing. Don't be deceived, right? As if to say, like, you're going to lose, lose sight of this. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from where? The Father. And what's he like? Is he generous today and stingy tomorrow? <laughs> Is he kind today? Because you're all dressed up and looking all nice and rose today, right? Is he going to turn on you? Oh, no. All the good things that you and I would receive come from God, and therefore we know how good he really is. And when we see those things rightly, genuine faith recognizes the origin of every good thing comes from God, and he won't change his mind. He won't change his mind to be kind to you. And I know many of you are like, you're just like, man, if I mess up just one more time, he's going to be done. Nope. He won't change his mind. He has given himself to you, he has signed it in his own blood. And so therefore, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Did you catch that? This is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is birth language. Brought us forth. Like more literally, he delivered and gave birth to us by how? By speaking what's eternally true. And what is true for us? In Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Jesus declares from his last words on the cross, not like, you guys better, you all, you wait till I come back, right? Oh, it's going to be a zombie apocalypse when I come back from the dead. No, what does he say? It's completely finished. It's all finished. It's finished. It's done. And here's what happens when you see that. Did you catch it? 
You're born. You come to life. It's as if you were delivered. And therefore, we're like the first fruits of what he's created. So let me wrap up with this. Notice what we see here. Look at the grace and promises in all of this. God is eager to give so we can ask. What God gives us won't perish, so we don't have to worry about our material wealth. God would never tempt us. God won't change and he won't turn on us. And ultimately, we are born of him, and so therefore our standing in him is one as son or daughter. But look at the word pictures. Here's what we're not. Did you catch it? We're not, because of Christ, like a storm-tossed wave. We're not like a withering grass and flower. We're not. Did you hear the language of being lured? It's the language of like of hunting. We're not prey, being trapped. Do you hear the language of being born of his truth, friend? We're not orphans. We're not orphans. Instead, in Christ, we can stand firm on the foundation and the cornerstone of his finished work. We can, in Christ, live forever. Because of Christ, we're not like, we're not withering and fading. We're more than conquerors. We're hyperstanders. In Christ, we are now adopted children of the Most High God. Friend, let that fizzle down to the depths of your own heart. Let that take over and rule your heart such that it grants you supernatural, eternal, and welcoming wisdom. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your mercy towards us. God, I I thank you for wisdom that comes above. I confess, Father, even my own frailty to somehow communicate wisdom. Um, I pray that even now that you would fulfill your promise to take our, our meager and humble attempts at obedience and see them through the lens of the obedience of Christ. So I pray that even now in this room we would receive wisdom in spite of even my own flaws and failures, my own inability to, to communicate it. I pray that that promise would be true in this room. Even now we would humbly, dependently ask you for wisdom and we would have a new and deep insight into your love. If there's some in this room, maybe they wouldn't call themselves Christians. Maybe today would be the day they realize the, the profound wisdom, the confounding wisdom, and the life-changing wisdom that you have displayed for us in Christ. Might they, even now, might we turn from earthly wisdom and look at the heavenly wisdom that comes in Christ at the cross and the empty tomb? I pray for the rest of us that these would serve as reminders of what faith you're calling us to receive. I pray that any, any of these bits of wisdom that James has shared with us, that I pray that they would begin to convict us and, and open up places where we're, we'll begin to experience more and more peace, more and more joy in spite of trial, in spite of our earthly circumstance. God, we are fleeting even though we often don't realize it. And we have reminders even recently of how fleeting and frail we are. We're, we're dust. We're like grass. But God, that's not what is eternally true of us in Christ. Thank you that you have granted us eternal life, eternal joy, eternal adoption in Jesus Christ. Amen.